with chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1931. And it's, it's the beginning of a horror series podcast. The movie Frankenstein. Hey everybody, welcome to... Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And this is the podcast where we are making our definitive list of the best movies of all time. We've already gone through the AFI list and now we have 60 slots open to be in contention for the best movies of all time. Once we find those 60 films, we'll add them to our list and we'll blast off 100 films into outer space. Amy, am I lying? You are not lying. I'm so serious about this. I am so serious to like impress the aliens and get them to let me hang out with them when we blow up this planet. Well, you know, we are embarking on a brand new miniseries. We just finished our uh, coming of age back to school miniseries, which was a lot of fun. And we're taking a very different turn for October. We are embracing horror and we have a big fun lineup coming up. And again, we turn to you for our final episode. You will be picking the last episode in this miniseries. But we have picked, I think, some pretty great and diverse films. Now, we will come back to horror. There are other horror films out there. This is just our entry in, our 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 introduction. Our first electrode. If you yes, exactly. Uh, we will be talking about Frankenstein today, which was kicked off the 1997 list. Um, but do you want to maybe go through uh, real quick, Amy, in case you don't know, the other films that will be coming up in this miniseries? I will. All right. Well, after you are terrorized by Frankenstein, you'd better hide under your bed because here comes the Babadook. And then you have to batten down your doors because it's the Night of the Living Dead. And, oh, no, <laughs> just when you thought it was safe to... Get high and watch horror films. It's Ganja and Hess. And then what's that coming out of the basement? I don't know. It's the viewer's pig. (laughs) I love the way that you've presented these. (laughs) This will be actually really a fun series. We tried to pick very diverse films and some things that you haven't heard about and some things that you might be very familiar with. Uh, So we look to you again, like I said, to 
pick our last one, and you can do that by using the hashtag ungooled. You can also submit your ideas on our Geneva chat. Uh, the link to our Geneva chat, which you can get right on your phone, is in our show notes. So you can check that out. But we look forward to hearing from you. And Amy, are you ready to kick off our horror miniseries? Oh, is this horror series ready to be alive? Unspooled. Unspooled. That feels like what the mummy would say, right? Because he's all spooled. <laughs> oh, yeah. <No>? True. <laughs> okay. The year is 1931. A serious drought in the Midwest created dust bowls and food shortage across the Great Plains, coupled with the lingering effects of the Great Depression in 1929, lead to some dark times in the States. Construction is completed on the Empire State Building. Official accounts list five deaths in the construction of the structure. However, there are rumors of up to 42 deaths. Warner Brothers releases their first Merry Melodies cartoon, Lady, Play Your Mandolin. Al Capone is arrested and is sentenced to 11 years in prison for tax evasion. Millionaire Ella Wendell dies and leaves $30 million to her poodle, Toby Rhymes. And all of his descendants to this day are also named Toby Rhymes, and they each have inherited the money throughout the generations. Did not know this. I thought you would really like that, Amy. Uh, the double feature becomes a staple in occupying the 16% of the unemployed population of the United States. And this year's popular films are City Lights, Dracula, Matahari, and today's subject, Frankenstein. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Frankenstein, directed by James Whale. It is the story of a young woman played by Mae Clark who is engaged to a doctor, Dr. Frankenstein. Dr. Frankenstein is played by Colin Clive, except as soon as he proposes to her, he disappears for four months to work on a scientific discovery that he says is driving him insane. When the young woman goes to his laboratory, she brings along her fiancé's professor and his and his best friend, who is maybe also the fiancé's secret crush. It's a little complicated. And they discover that not only is her husband-to-be on the verge of a panic attack, but he and his lab assistant, Fritz, have just electrocuted a man alive, except that the man has a deformed and pickled criminal brain. Which isn't really a problem, except that they make it a problem. And then, like, the monster gets angry and he lashes out violently and he kills a couple people and he kills a kid. And then he's finally set on fire by a pitchfork-wielding mob. The monster, of course, becomes a star-making role for an actor who had been around for a long time doing little stuff. Nobody had been paying attention to him. His name was Boris Karloff. He agrees to star in two more sequels before the decade is over, Bride of Frankenstein and Son of Frankenstein. And we have to say, this movie, this one right here, 1931, was shocking. Like, we're talking walkouts, and it was a massive hit, but we are saying that people were freaked out by this movie. And if that is at all confusing to today's audiences who are like, how was this movie ever freaky to people? I would like to have a counterpoint. Because if we take that and rewind it back to November 21st, 1931, the weekend that Frankenstein came out, I'll be honest, the hit song on the radio sounds freaky to me. Maybe I have been warped by too many horror films, but I think this song sounds like something I would not want to hear coming out of a basement. A new day is born, so I'll say good night, sweetheart. Though I'm not beside you, good night, sweetheart. Still my love will guide you, dreams and hold you in each one I'll hold you. Sweetheart. Good night. 
Now, I have to say that song, Goodnight Sweetheart, performed by Wayne King, that I find personally terrifying and creepy and unnerving. Audiences of 1931 loved it because that was the number one hit for almost two months. Wow. And do you know what finally knocked it off the charts? No. This song replaced it. So I'll say goodnight, sweetheart. Oh, I'm what? not beside you. Good night, sweetheart. Still my love will What? Die. That is hilarious. Is that like, uh-huh. wow, is that the only time that that's ever happened? I don't know, but it was just another version of the same creepy-ass basement song performed by Guy Lombardo. <laughs> I love that answer. <laughs> that it was just the same song. That feels so 2020 to me. Uh, I, that has to be the only time <laughs> that that has happened. Like a song gets off the chart and replaced by the same song. Um, well, if anybody can find another example in which a song is replaced, here it was replaced by Guy Lombardo. Let us know because now I'm curious. And if the song is even creepier than Goodnight Sweetheart, I definitely want a warning. All right. Well, I want to get into a lot about this film. This is the first time I've ever seen this film. How about you? I have seen this film. I have seen this film. I mean, I'm a creepy person. Hey, look, I mean, I've always uh, felt like I've seen this film, but I realize what I really have seen is young Frankenstein. So I want to even kind of go back and talk about that as well. But first, let's address what you were saying about um, why people were freaked out. And I think uh, I thought this opening was funny, but now hearing what you were saying it actually served a purpose. Let's play a, a clip of the opening where a man uh, comes out from behind a curtain. Mr. Carl Emily feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... uh, Well, we've warned you. This is a warning. Uh, that was added late in the film's production as a proactive measure towards religious groups uh, who were going to get up in arms about the film's theme of a man taking control of what is believed to be God's power. Um, and and here's the best part. John Huston, a staff writer of at Universal at the time, wrote an early version of this warning. Like that was his kind of contribution to it. I don't know how many of his words are still there, but he was tasked with... Uh, not upsetting the religious uh, contingent of the the audience. (laughs) Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, there is a bit of that touch of showmanship, you know, because like Universal, where this was filmed, loved to spread rumors that when um, Karloff was walking around the set in his full monster makeup, that Carl Lemley, who um, was still owning Universal, even though it was his son, Carl Lemley Jr., who made this film and rushed into production, that he would make Boris Karloff walk around the set with a big veil over his head in oh, case wow. of quote unquote pregnant women so that he wouldn't that's cause them amazing. to lose an abortion. And what? that was the kind of story where you're like, that's they're kind of buffing that up for the press. But you're also right. I mean, 1931, we're about to slide back into the intense production code where a couple years right ahead of it, 
And you can sense they're a little, they're testing the waters. Like, can we get away with this? What can we do? And this is a film that was edited because of the production code. They even well, slept on a, a happy ending at the end because there are so many people walking in and out and in and out during the test screening. They'd walk out, then they'd walk back in, and then they would just walk back out again. So interesting because the ending to me is the only bizarre part of the film. It feels like it's not connected to the rest of the film. And when I did my research, I realized, oh, it it really wasn't. Like the ending wasn't supposed to be this way. So it does feel tacked on. It doesn't feel of the of the same theme. Um, I think the idea is that, you know, Frankenstein creates this monster and then the monster uh, destroys him and is also destroyed. It's a really sad ending, you know. Um, but going back to the production code, this whole idea of this line, you know, this line, which is the most controversial line in in the film. Now I know what it's like to be God. Right. And they cut that line out. They they censored that line in the 30s because they they said it was blasphemy and they put a loud clap of thunder over it uh, to make sure that this movie was not, you know, uh, not being blasphemous, which is I mean, I'm so blown away by that because it's such a large film. But I guess at this time, I mean, you know, I guess, you know, religion and films could not mix. Yeah, because back then, you know, local religious groups really had the control of the local censorship board. So you could be banned in Kansas City, but you could be allowed to play in St. Louis. It was very pocket driven. And you had to just make sure a couple people were okay with you because we don't really have that, you know, I wouldn't call it a well-oiled machine, the the MVAA, but we don't really have that apparatus yet. So it's kind of like, I don't know, um, you release a movie into the wilderness, into fiefdoms. You see what happens. You see who's battling it out over what they're offended by. So interesting. And I also was really taken with the length of this film. This is a very short film. It's not even 90 minutes. And um, it's also coming out in a time where there are films that are much longer than 90 minutes. So I was curious if you knew anything about why this movie was so compact. Was it because it's a horror film, a genre film? I don't know. Like, is there anything about that? Yeah, I do know a little bit about it. I mean, what is so interesting about Frankenstein in 1931 is actually something you touched on right at your beginning. It comes out the same year, a few months after Dracula, also by the Universal Monsters. And this is, you know, it kind of, when when I talk about it, it almost feels modern like today. You know, Carl Emley, the head of Universal, gives his son, Carl Emley Jr., control over what to make in the studio. And his son is like, I'm going to make horror films. And his dad is like, oh, God, please don't make horror films. I don't really like horror films. Horror films are awful. And he's like, oh, I'm going to make horror films. And so first he does Dracula. And his dad is like, this is going to suck. Nobody's going to come. This is going to be terrible. And Dracula is a huge hit. Huge hit. And so immediately, Carl Lindley Jr. is like, what else can I rush into production? Right. And so he picks Frankenstein because he's like, it's got enough of a literary pedigree that maybe I can get it around my dad's like fears. And it maybe it has enough of a name brand value that it'll do okay. There, there wasn't a huge history of Frankenstein movies at this time. Like Thomas Edison had made a Frankenstein movie in 1910, but the Frankenstein, that movie's lost. You can find one still of it. Right. The Frankenstein there, he kind of looks like John Goodman and a hairball. He doesn't look anything <laughs> like the Frankenstein that we know. It's like if John Goodman was a hairball that rolled out from under your bed and was like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> but that, you know, that's what he looked like. But it's also interesting that um, Dracula comes out the same year and the Lemleys believe like, 
all right, he's our monster guy. We want Bella Lugosi to now be Frankenstein. Bella Lugosi turns it down. I think there's a screen test that no one has ever been able to find of Bella Lugosi as Frankenstein. But I love that they really wanted to double down. Like, you are the monster guy. Like, it, it's kind of the same way where if you are successful in a comedy or whatever, they just try to make you do the same part over and over again. Uh, but I love that it's the same year. They had no faith in the idea of like, we could find somebody else. Someone else can do this just as well. Yeah, I mean, because really what we're talking about is the dawn of the horror film, really, because mm. we had had spooky films, you know, before in like the 20s and stuff, but they were all silent films of, because we hadn't had like sound, of course. So you had mostly coming out of Europe, you know, Nosferatu, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but 1931, which, as you described even at the beginning, we're settling into the Depression. You're seeing this rise of gangster films showing up. And in that aggression, you're finding this rage that expresses itself in monster movies. So they're brand new. They're kind of considered risky. They're short. They're experimental. And yeah, like Lon Chaney had been the horror guy of the silent era. You know, mm-hmm. the Phantom of the Opera of being like his most famous one. And so they're like, well, we just need the new Lon Chaney. And it was going to be Bela Lugosi for a second. And Bela Lugosi, there's a bunch of rumors about why he didn't wind up playing Frankenstein. But one of them is that he thought that Dracula was like a sex god. He was like... I'm real sexy. I'm a sexy ass actor. Dracula is sexy. I'm sexy. I'm too sexy for Frankenstein. Frankenstein doesn't talk. I'm not that guy. I talk and I'm sexy. So I'm not going to do this role. So because Bela Lugosi was like, I'm too sexy for your Frankenstein. He (laughs) opens the door for Boris Karloff to stomp through. By the way, I want to just agree with Bela Lugosi. Uh, He's right. Dracula and Frankenstein are very, very different characters. Uh, but here is actually a clip of how Boris Karloff was discovered. I was playing in a film at Universal, and James Whale was the director of Frankenstein, and uh, he saw me in the makeup, or rather in the lunchroom, and um, I had my best makeup on, straight makeup, and what I thought was my best suit. I was playing a different kind of part. And he invited me to his table to have a cup of coffee and said he would like to make a test of me for the monster. And I thought, well, that doesn't speak very well of my nice straight makeup and my good suit. However, I was delighted. When you look at Boris Karloff, he doesn't look anything like the monster. He looks a little bit like Ernie Borgnine in a way. Like, that, like, like that's his look. Um... So I yeah, mean, uh, he's got like a big head, you know, yes. he's big head, heavy yes. brow. I mean, the story I heard is that when Jamesville first spotted him, he got obsessed with his face and almost like he was a schoolgirl with a crush. He started doodling Boris Karloff's face and all his notebooks and turning him oh, into a monster. Wow. Well, I mean, this is so interesting because the monster described in the Mary Shelley novel does not look like the monster in this film. And that's something I didn't quite know. Uh, you know, the, the whole idea of the bolts and all of that stuff was designed by uh, the makeup artists on this film. So I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of love to be given to these people who came up. This is Jack P. Pierce. He came up with all of the innovations, uh, the droopy eyelids, the poorly fitted suit. Um, and, and I guess Boris Karloff and him both decided that he would take out some of his dental work. So his uh, his face would be a little bit more caved in. Uh, you know, they put on these shoes that weighed 13 pounds each, you know, uh, so they really created something. Yeah, he, he had like a metal spine in the back 
of his jacket. So he'd walk straight. He had like metal pipes in the legs of his pants. I mean, they went all out. Like he apparently worked on getting the makeup right for, I think, three hours a day for three weeks until they figured it out. They tried, they would paint scars onto him and then repaint his skin pale green in order for it to look like it was decomposing, even in black and white. There's actually a clip online, if you go searching, I think it's of a makeup test for Son of Frankenstein. And you can see in color Boris Karloff in this kind of sickly green walking around. But no, Pierce was like a genius. The reason that this Frankenstein has like the big hands and the big face and the big feet was that he had read that Egyptians used to bind criminals by their hands and their feet and bury them alive. So that when you dug them up, their hands and feet would be all swollen. And he wanted to capture that like creepy, evil, swollen look. But it was really hard. I mean, Karloff, to his credit, was like, this is really difficult. Like, I'm not only acting for 16 hours a day. I'm not only losing 25 pounds in this costume because it's like painting over all of my Mm -hmm. pores. I'm not getting any sleep because it takes me five hours to get my makeup put on. And then I shoot for 16 hours. Then I get my makeup off. Then I have to get like an hour of sleep and go back to the set. And so it's not long after this that he realized, you know, there's no protections for actors in this town. And he becomes one of the founding members of the Screen Actors Guild. Like the very first meetings are held at his house because he's like, this is some bullshit. I need to be taken care of better. Wow. I love that. And, you know, talking about uh, being taken care of better, you know that Universal made a crazy deal with Jack Pierce about his makeup. They own the rights of his makeup. Uh until 2026. They still have that. That monster makeup Whoa. design. Uh, it's licensed by Universal Studios Licensing. But that is, I mean, from 1931 to 2026, they were like, we're locking this down. And That's like Mickey Mouse rules. Exactly. I mean, this is, you know, this is a time where I think we are on the precipice of a lot of changes. You know, we're we're... Actors are being treated better. Professionals are being treated better because they are being taken advantage of here. I mean, and the Lemleys were known for being real cheapskates and not caring that much about whether or not their actors were happy. I mean, Dracula's a hit and they still let Bela Lugosi's contract expire the next year. They're like, fuck you. Like, they're crazy. They're crazy. I want to ask you a question that really kind of, I mean, this is kind of off the topic because I want to get into uh, his performance, which I do believe is amazing. But I was having this big issue with the film and I call me crazy, but... Isn't the doctor Victor Frankenstein? Okay, yes. I'm glad that we're talking about this. Okay. Because in the movie, the doctor is Henry Frankenstein. Right? Like, there's some lore that we know about Frankenstein movies, right? Mm-hmm. It's Victor Frankenstein, and that we can't call the we can't call the monster Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein's monster. Right. Which, by the way, I was thinking, I will absolutely screw that up at least once. So if oh, yeah. I at any point call the monster Frankenstein... Josh, I want you to uh, unleash the dogs. I will take you up on this challenge. And I will also add that apparently there is a cut of the film where they named Frankenstein's monster Adam, which is, I think, pretty what? cool. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I think well, makes total actually, sense. Biblical. Yeah. I am God. I was My boyfriend is named Adam. So for a minute, I was like offended on behalf of Adams. But. <laughs> no, but I think that that's actually a really cool addition. Um, but no one has seen that version. But uh, it was in an almanac at the time that Frankenstein's <laughs> monster was originally called Adam. Uh, yeah, but, but no, you're right. Like there's a couple things that we think we know about Frankenstein. One, it's Victor Frankenstein. And mm-hmm. two, 
his hunchbacked assistant is named Igor. Except yes. here, it's Henry Frankenstein. I think his proper name is Heinrich von Frankenstein. And his assistant is named Fritz. So it's yes. like right from the beginning, actually, I had this, I forgot that none of this was actually what it was. I don't know why it's so established in our head that it's like Victor and Igor. There's no Igor even in the book. He's Victor in the, in the book. You know, it's so interesting. There's so many parts of this that live in the public consciousness, like, you know, what Frankenstein is, who Igor is. And again, going back to what I said earlier on, I know so much or I've seen young Frankenstein so much that I also have ideas of what it is because there is so many similarities. I mean, I think young Frankenstein is such a beautiful parody of this film after seeing this film. Uh, And so much so Mm -hmm. that Mel Brooks actually used some of the same sets that were in Frankenstein because they were in storage. And so there is, uh, on top of thematic uh, similarities, there are literal prop similarities. But um, there is something so funny about the scene where the hunchback, you know, uh, Fritz is going to get the brain And this is a scene that I always thought was played for comedy in Young Frankenstein, where he gets the abnormal brain, but because he drops the other brain. But in this movie, he fucking drops a good brain. I was like, wait, like, I thought that was just like parody. I did not realize that that was in the film. And I know, like, who cares what you thought? But it still was like, I thought that was a joke. I always (laughs) thought that was a joke. It's so funny to me that he was scared by a skeleton. And then he heard another noise and dropped it and then got the wrong brain. I mean, it's such a, I mean, it's such a bizarre twist in this whole film. I I thought that was such a conceit of young Frankenstein, not actually Frankenstein. No, you're right. And it's kind of extra funny because, you know, Fritz is breaking into this professor's lecture and the professor's giving this lecture on brains. Right. And in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, here we have one of the most perfect specimens of the human brain that has ever come to my attention at the university. And here, the abnormal brain of the typical criminal. Observe, ladies and gentlemen, the scarcity of convolutions on the frontal lobe as compared to that of the normal brain, and the distinct degeneration of the middle frontal lobe. All of these degenerate characteristics check amazingly with the case history of the dead man before us, whose life was one of brutality, of violence, and murder. Both of these jars will remain here for your further inspection. Which, by the way, I, what I love about that lecture is he's like, you know, here's a normal brain, here's a bad brain, you know, using that like early phrenology, basically, right. like kind of discredited now phrenology about what makes different brains different. But what you see in that scene is that all of his students in that class see the skeleton moving and they just crack up. It's weirdly the guy whose job it is to hang out with dead bodies who's freaked out and like drops the jar. Right. And also, you know, it's funny how many fake outs there are about whose body parts are going to be in Frankenstein. Because the movie opens with this like really stark and I think striking shot. The camera's really low. You just have this gigantic matte backdrop and you're staring at a funeral and you get that slow pan across all Mm. of the faces. That creepy crusader looking skeleton statue over there. And then Fritz hiding out with... Henry Frankenstein. I mean, Henry, come on. Henry Frankenstein. (laughs) And then right after that, they like see this like hung man on a post that they can't use his brain because he's been hung. But there's all of these different people that he's going to, you know, assemble and then be like, nailed it. 
He's going across the countryside trying to find the perfect man. I mean, uh, you know, many of us can uh, recognize that. Uh, He's I just a Kate wanna... Hudson movie, just, you know, <laughs> with, a, with a, a little friend. I wanted to call out one thing in that opening, uh, which is the sound. And the sound throughout this film is amazing, right? It's the first film to use, like, that castle thunder sound effect, the, the voltage going through. Like, sound is so beautiful here. And I also feel like... You can tell that this movie was shot on a stage because there's a little bit of echoing throughout the whole film. But in that opening scene, I was immediately pulled in by the sound of the dirt going on the grave. It it It's such a... Uh, they just got this great sound. And apparently, they put a microphone in the coffin to get that sound. So they were really trying to, I think not challenge you, but do different things to immerse you in this horror. And all these elements are things that are traditionally parts of horror films. Sound design is such a big part of horror. And they were already touching upon this. It's like this, James Whale is doing things that are going to shape and define what horror films become for the rest of time. Ah, James Whale becomes James Wan. <laughs> yeah, yeah you're right. You're right. And, and especially here in 31, when they can't show a lot of blood, they can't right. really show blood. You know, like now we're like, oh, it's brains everywhere. Blah, 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 blah. Check this out. But, you know, they really only have like sound and atmosphere and shadows and pacing at this yeah. moment because they're not going to go all Herschel Gordon Lewis yet. You know, the, no. Herschel Gordon Lewis is like 30 years away. They can't. They're not ready. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You know, what I thought was interesting as well, again, what I know about the book, what I know about Young Frankenstein, what I know about Frankenstein, and then what I know about this film, I didn't realize that this film also, talking about sound and and the look, and and not making it gory, um, how they did the reanimation scene. Because that scene is really uh, an intense scene. And knowing that they had to jump through so many hoops, first of all, they're reanimating a dead body. So they're already in this precarious area. They can't show blood, precarious area. They, I'm sure, have to be very careful about how they show a dead body because you really don't see a dead body. You see elements of body uh, before the monster's on the table. You see his, you know, his head's all wrapped up, and I, I get that's for the reveal. But they had to come up with an idea of how to animate him. And in the book, they don't describe it because um, Victor Frankenstein is is narrating the book. And he's saying, I don't even want to tell you what I did because I don't want you to do it, which I love. I mean, dramatic conceit. And by the way, Mary Shelley, 19 years old when she wrote this, amazing. But then the idea was put to the filmmakers, like, well, how do we do this? Like, what what is the way that you reanimate somebody? And I mean, it creates essentially this 
known entity of how Frankenstein is reanimated. Like this is this idea of it's alive, the lightning bolts, all these things were created because there was nothing there. Yeah, I mean, I want to listen to that scene because mm-hmm. it it comes the the it's alive the way that builds, you know, in his voice from like a whisper right. to a scream after there's been this whole chaos of thunder and electrical storms. In my imagination, there's a lot of dog barking. I don't know if I'm just confusing it with the end of the film where there's also a lot of, oh, dog, a lot of barking. dog barking. Yeah, a lot of dog barking. Who let the dogs out? Frank, 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 Frank. I'm sorry. I'll stop. Uh, but no. Dr. Uh, Frankenstein. Please refer to him by his medical title. It's who let the dogs out? Doctor. Dr. Frankenstein. That's fine. Unleash the hounds on me. <laughs> but as I was saying, let's listen to that because the, the, there's this tension. I feel like you almost feel the electricity in the air that you're supposed to feel if you're in the room. You know, Dr. Frankenstein says that this works because he's found a higher color on the spectrum than ultraviolet, which he never says what the color is. But I'm so curious because like we have Roy G. Biv and I want to know what the Roy G. Biv becomes. Like, is it Roy G. Biv Q? Like Roy G. Biv I'll never L? Tell. Am I the only person who cares about- You just want to know because you want to reanimate a dead body. Be honest. I mean, possibly. Although I do love the moment like he's about to be reanimating and then- you know, his his uh, fiance knocks on the door with like all of their friends. I mean, it's oh very much. <laughs> I mean, it's I mean, comical. Th- it is comical. I mean, in many respects, we are talking about like this man who's so focused on his work and, you know, his wife just wants to get his attention or his, sorry, his fiance. Like there is very funny elements. Even when uh, Fritz goes to the door, he's like, he's busy. Clunk. Like it's they I don't know if their intent is to play it for comedy, but they are, they definitely have a touch of I don't know. There's a lightness to this film in that is also incredibly dark. I mean, yeah. I mean, that scene is really exactly. It's like 15 minutes into electrical storm and chill, and your fiance gives you that knock, and she's like, "I am here." <laughs> like, Come on, I'm working. But I mean, but they do play. They it's play only comedy. Been four months without me, aren't you fine? <laughs> but you know, I think I, I like, and I hope that there is a sense of humor across the board here because I think. They are dealing with something that is outlandish, right? This this idea of reanimating a body and being obsessed with his work. And I think they lean into the comedy of of all of these characters. Like the dad is incredibly funny. Even the professor seems to have a lightness to him. It's not played uh, melodramatically. And maybe that's more of an energy that you're getting out of like the Hammer horror films. But there is... I think the best horror have some of the biggest laughs. You know, if you look at something like, um, you know, the last Jordan Peele movie, us, like there are some hilarious moments in that film that are that are standing side by side. Some fucking terrifying uh, moments and performances. Well, yeah, I mean, right after they bring the monster to life, it cuts to the dad's drawing room and the dad is having 
this whole fight about a Burgermeister. If you please, Herr Baron, the Burgermeister. Well, tell him to go away. But he says it's important. Nothing the Burgermeister can say can be of the slightest importance. Good day, Herr Baron. <laughs> By the way, I'm obsessed with the word Burgermeister. Oh, I, I, I meet you. Let's get into it. How have we let that position in the community slide? Like, why can't we run for Burgermaster? I would love to be Burgermaster. Well, look, I mean, you go to Germany. You can, I'm sure there's a Burgermaster still in Germany, I believe. Do you think there is? I mean, oh, I would love to be Burgermaster be. Nicholson. Can't you imagine? I mean, that fits you actually really well. I am German, so Burgermaster Scheer works really good. <laughs> is Scheer a German name? Um, you know, I am German and Hungarian, uh... Oh, like and, like uh, Bela Lugosi. Oh, look at Hungarian. that! I also know I have some Irish blood in me as well. I, you know, I, I got to look into it. I got to get on. You're the a real Frankenstein. I got. I'm a real Frank. I'm a. I'm a uh, yes, good catch. <laughs> um, but uh, you know this this idea of what this movie is even talking about is really interesting because there's so many things that are happening, obviously in the horror world. Like this is you know, reanimating dead tissue. But really, it's a story of obsession. It's a story of uh, people attacking what they're afraid of. It's also this beautiful, I mean, I think it's a beautiful story of an innocent being hunted and murdered because he is different. Um and I mean, these are all big themes, right, that are going on here. And I think that that's what makes this movie really resonant uh, to me. And yes, he's a big monster with bolts out of his neck. Um, but the way that Karloff plays him is so sympathetic. I mean, it's a beautiful, I think it's a beautiful performance. I think it is too. And and you know, before you really even dig into that a little further, you know, talking about those those themes that you were mentioning... It really struck me how relevant those themes felt rewatching this film in yes. 2020. You know, when Dr. Frankenstein gives that speech about why he's doing it, you know, the look beyond speech. Have you never wanted to do anything that was dangerous? Where should we be if nobody tried to find out what lies beyond? You never wanted to look beyond the clouds and the stars or to know what causes the trees to bud and what changes the darkness into light. But if you talk like that, people call you crazy. Well, if I could discover just one of these things, what eternity is, for example, I wouldn't care if they did think I was crazy. What I hear in his voice at that moment, I mean, the idea of people who only believe what they want to believe, or they want to believe what they want to believe, and that idea of ambition without realizing what's going to happen. I mean, it's, it's Zuckerberg, you know, it's, right. it's all of the people who are doing big dreams that are kind of ruining our world in different ways. What's that? What's that um, monologue? Like it's from a film and I'm sorry, everyone who's listening is going to be so furious with me where it's like you, it, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do this in two terrible ways. I'm going to misquote it and I'm not going to remember what it's from where oh, it's I like, can't wait. where it's like, you are the true monster, Paul. I am the true Frankenstein monster where it's like, you spend so much time wondering if you could do it, but not if you should do it. Like, you know, and that we can get so obsessed That's Jurassic with Jurassic Park, dude. 
Ah, uh, look at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> Should have been in the AFI list, much to wow. everyone's discontent when I said that a few episodes back <laughs> on the Jaws episode. Um, but there is such a, I mean, look, Jurassic Park is Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. It is. It It's this idea of, uh, you know, we can become so obsessed, so myopic about what we are passionate about that we start to neglect the bigger Questions and I mean, look. If you watch that documentary on Netflix right now, the social dilemma, that is exactly this as well. And it doesn't have to be about the creation of literal creatures, but it's a creation of technology. It's a creation of, you know, it's a creation of something you can't control. Right. It it becomes something bigger than you, and and you're not thinking about the consequences. I mean, that's such a relatable, a relatable thing. And I think next to that, what's relatable is. This idea of destroying something that you don't understand or attacking something that is weaker than you. Uh, oh, I mean, it's its a lot. You're right. This is a great movie for 2020. Yeah. Let's talk about the monster now because yeah. we get that amazing reveal you know, where right after uh, Dr. Frankenstein gives his whole like look beyond speech, you see Frankenstein shuffle in and it is such a great entrance. He mm. shuffles in backwards. So yes. you just see his shape. You can't see his face. Yeah. Then he slowly turns around and you get that reveal. And then the editing, it's like cut, cut, cut. You get mm-hmm. closer to his face just really fast. You just look at it and he looks stunning. I mean, those like hollows in his cheeks standing at an inhuman diagonal slant from what they, the lifts they must yeah. have in his shoes where he's like, I don't know what that is. Like he's standing at. 70 degrees or something they give him that movie star entrance like they shoot him like it's joan crawford you know looking up from underneath her gigantic hat or something like that and he looks really cool like he, he looks so 80s like the way that his like sleeves are too short and kind of pushed he looks like david byrne to be i was honest. gonna say does he look like james spader uh i was gonna say though again just to underscore some of the things that i loved about this film was it's not played like dun dun dun. It's yeah. played more real. Even the Fritz Igor character, while that character has a funny moment, it's grounded. Like the hunchback isn't part of the thing. It's it's just like, oh, that his assistant happens to be a hunchback. What is so impressive is to make a horror film and not to blow it out of proportion. To make a horror film and go, here's as real as we can make this outlandish concept. And that's I think the best horror often is grounded in in reality. And I think that makes it work so much better. So when you have that scene where Fritz is torturing the monster, you feel, uh, I feel a tremendous um, anxiety. And, uh, and I feel like, fuck Fritz. Like, why are you getting in this monster's face? He doesn't, he's not doing anything bad to you. He's, but he's like just torturing him, like beating up a bully. Like there is, they play it so... Um, I don't know. The emotion is literally on its short sleeve. Frankenstein, where is it? Where is it? Ah! Quiet, you fool! Get away with that torch. I can understand that Bela would feel like a character who doesn't talk was a step down. But what Boris is able to do with his guttural noises, his yelps and his whines, his body language 
is unbelievable. I mean, one of the details that really knocks me out is what he's doing with his arms the whole time. Like when he sits down at the chair, he's sitting with his hands just straight out on the chair mm-hmm. arms further than any person would be. Just these little bits of unnatural movements. And then it's heartbreaking because right after that, you know, the doctor's like, open the skylight. And he looks at the sun and you see the monster just reach up like and all this yearning and this wanting on his face, his hands outstretched. Yeah. And then the doctor closes it and leaves him in darkness with his hands outstretched. And it's this beautiful image. Then you see the doctor walk into the frame and he is lowering his hands, but it makes it look like he's reaching out to the doctor now with his hands outstretched. He just wants something. And the doctor is yeah. not paying attention. The doctor doesn't care. You know, and then he's immediately, you know, scared by Fritz Igor and then chained. And when you see him get chained and whipped, like I, I was thinking of King Kong at that moment, you know, of of the of a movie that came out right after this and thinking like, what did King Kong take from this? You know, here yeah. is your beast and you're going to torture it and you're going to really take our empathies away from the humans, the quote unquote humans. Can I walk you back one more step and see if I'm crazy or I have some validity here, which is. Mary Shelley, 19 years old when she writes this. And I wonder if part of her writing this, and I'm sure there are people out there that can say yes or no to this, but I'm going to entertain it nonetheless. Just the way I entertain my Brody has a a gunshot wound, not an appendix scar, which was proven wrong Mm -hmm. uh, by many people. Uh, But the, a lot of Jaws corrections today. Um, Is there anything to be said for 19-year-old Mary Shelley writing the story about absentee parents. Here she is, you know, her parents gave birth to her. They leave her alone. They, they, they use her for whatever they want. You know, like it's the feeling I think that many people in a high school or in that time of your life have, right? Like, you know, who am I? Do my parents really care about me? We just came off of six movies where we were watching this idea of like, what, what role do the parents play in this pivotal point in your life. And here she is in this pivotal point in her life talking about the responsibilities of creation and her parents created her. I don't know. I, I'm drawing a big idea, but I like that idea because it's, it is the idea of you don't have to be creating a monster, but if you are going to create, you must protect and you must help and you must, uh, you know, it's not just to show. And I think that Frank, you know, Frankenstein, the doctor wants to, the accolades, but isn't real, not even realizing that he's created a monster, but not caring the monster, even though it's living and he's so obsessed with being God and making something and making man, he doesn't care about the man. He just really cares about the act. And, and there is something about that. I think with absentee parents and the way that you could feel, I, I just think that subconsciously, maybe consciously that could exist in this Mary Shelley idea of, you know, who are our parents? I mean, this is a story about parenting and, and, and children as much as it is about obsession. Well, I hadn't thought of it exactly like that. Like I, I thought of it in terms of Mary Shelley, you know, as a wife to be because mm-hmm. she's sitting around with, with um, Percy, right. mm-hmm. her husband to be the right. poet, but I wasn't. And so I was thinking about her being like you men and the things that you do that you think are so special that, so many women do and don't right. expect extra applause for, you know, oh, this act wow. of creation. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, like you think you're a god for doing a thing that's actually 50% of the population. Women are gods. Women are making this every day. And we're not, you know, we're not, we're not, you know, we're not, we are, you know, we are bringing this life into the world. Oh, that's interesting too. And also probably the guilt of, not the guilt, but the pressure of being a parent herself. Exactly. But you're right. Like what really did pop out to me in this watch was the father, how much the father talks about dynasties and lineages and the and the Frankenstein family. I mean, I love that scene where you know he's having a toast to his husband's wedding that he expects mm-hmm. to be later on that day. And he's also, you know, being a little cheap with the champagne. My, my grandfather bought this wine and laid it down. <laughs> my grandmother wouldn't let him drink it. <laughs> oh, bless her heart. Yes, so a very good health. <laughs> Will you? You all full? Yes, come yeah. along. Here's the health to a son of the House of Frankenstein. A son to the House of Frankenstein. Here's a jolly good health to young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein. Give the servants some champagne. This stuff's wasted on them. Well, 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 well. Uh, 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 Go on, mop it up, mop it up. It'll do you good. You hear so much in his voice, like my family, what we've done, what we pass on, that kind of mania that you can see in his son. Like I must create, I must pass on. This is my thing. And as much as you sense that, you know, the young Dr. Frankenstein doesn't really love or look up to his dad. The young Dr. Frankenstein is even worse to his creation. The young Dr. Frankenstein doesn't right. try at all to empathize with his monster. So maybe he's learning bad parenthood from his father, because otherwise it's hard to imagine why this dad is such a big character in the film. I mean, the dad even gets the last line talking about the legacy of the house of Frankenstein. But also the dad won't listen to what they're telling him. Like they're saying your son is X, Y, and Z. And he's like, no, 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 it's a girl. I know it's a girl. Don't worry about it. Like he's not, (laughs) he is being that typical parent. Like, I don't care. No, no, no. It's ball bullshit. I got it. I understand it. I'm smarter. I get, you know, and that there is, I mean, look, this movie is a damning portrayal of men and their, and, and how they want their status to be. I mean, and it's every man in this movie has an Achilles heel of how they want to be perceived. I mean, even uh, Dr. Frankenstein's teacher goes a little bit longer than, he, you know, like the, everybody wants a little bit more, you know, and they're, they're, they're all trying to get their own. Um, and meanwhile, the female character in this movie, the fiance to be really uh, just wants uh, her fiance. But I mean, she like that, her goal is just to get him, out of that world and, 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 and connecting to a real person, not trying to animate a dead person. Yeah. But even she has that scene where she's like, something bad is going to happen. And her fiance is like, no, like, right. no, but it is right. Like, no, yeah, no. But yet I appreciate how this film is still pretty Spartan. I would say in like backstories and yes. ultra heavy, like character driven messaging. You know, it's not like we ever see anybody in the town being like, he took my dad's hand and I must get revenge. Right. You know, there's not this complicated, really tedious backstory. Like we don't know anything about any of the dead people, even though we see that funeral in the opening shot. We're not attached to who any of those people were. There's no moment where they're like, whose brain exactly was it? 
oh no, it's right. Pierre's. Pierre did this. Like I well, appreciate how stripped down it is of any of the extraneous nonsense. There's not even like Dr. Frankenstein lost his brother and must make right. a new What brother. was he doing before? Why did he get obsessed with this? What does he care about? Like, yeah. it, no, Who it's a cares? very, it's such a streamlined film. And for a movie that's an hour and six minutes or whatever it is, it's, um, it just goes to show you, you can be as powerful in an hour as you can be in two and a half hours. And, you know, I'm always impressed with that efficiency. Like, can you do it in 90 minutes or less? And not to say that that's the be all end all, but we've gotten into this idea that like bloat or it's got to be two and a half hours or, mm-hmm. you know, we have to tell a story this way. And I think that this is a very complex story that has a lot of emotional weight and yet it doesn't overstay its welcome. It plays everything in a really uh, grounded way for the most part. And uh, and you're in and out. I, I, I don't know. I'm always impressed by that. I, I really liked it. And I think, you know, unfortunately, this film, its only miss is simply the end because it was forced on them. But the story needs to complete with this this monster killing him. I mean, that... That's the story. And, and they give it yeah, to I you. Yeah, I mean, at least the yeah. way that Henry hits that windmill arm oh, and yeah. falls off. Oh, he's no. dead. He's no. dead. He's, he's dead, dead as a fucking doornail. I mean. He's dead. And it's it's such a, it you know, and that's Hollywood and kind of creating this new thing. And the ending is so bizarre. It just seems so like, it seems silly. That last shot, you know, it's yeah. just like. The girls are giggling, drinking yeah, it's like, wine. I mean, I don't want to hear that scene after you hear Frankenstein screaming. Because that's, no. that, when Frankenstein's on fire and you hear these screams right here. That's horrendous. Those are the most pitiful animal type of screams I've almost ever heard in a film. No, I mean, but also you grow to like him. I mean, here's what Frankenstein does that's bad, right? Uh, Let's break it down. Like, first of all, like, we don't even know what he's understanding, but he seems to understand a little bit, right? Um, They torment him, and in an attempt to stop the torment, he kills his tormentor, which is Fritz, right? Uh, That is bad, but also Fritz was tormenting him. In an earlier draft of the screenplay, it was an accident that he lights a match and Frankenstein goes wild. And there's something there, but I, I like that they made this turn. Like, like he's, it, it makes it, I don't know, it makes it a little bit more interesting. Like, then it, like, if they just light a match and he goes wild, he's a wild animal and you hunt a wild animal or you try to bring it, you know, you bring yeah. it to a shelter. But he's there's, being yeah. caged and whipped and yeah. miserable. And he doesn't understand what happened. He just started to live right now. Exactly. Or, I mean, or does he have the memories of that abnormal brain? I mean, who is that abnormal brain? We don't know. Yeah, uh, I mean, the abnormal brain could just be a big red herring. Like, they're just blaming it on an abnormal brain that they're abusing their little yeah. monster. And then he kills Dr. Waldman, which I would say is a thousand percent in self-defense because Dr. Waldman yes. is literally about to kill and dissect him. Yes, I, I believe that that is a moment of self-defense, 100 percent. Don't fault him for that at all. Um, But here's the one issue. This is really why the town is up in arms. It is the girl, the little girl. 
Maria. Uh, Maria. Maria. I once knew a little girl named Maria. <laughs> Wrong movie. They, uh, she <laughs> is throwing flowers into a pond. And I love when the monster comes upon her and the way that she reacts to him is so kind of beautiful. Like it's, he's fine. He's normal to her. Right. And, and, you know, he joins her in this activity and, and, you know, he's just trying to play along and he doesn't know. And he runs out of flowers and he throws her in the water. Um, You know, in the original film uh, movie, he, you know, he hurls her into the lake and then is like upset that she's not floating like the flowers did, uh, which (laughs) is much darker, but also I think makes him again, more sympathetic. Like the the way it's put in the film, it just seems like a a violent act. And I feel like the, this is the one where if, if aired the way intended, it would have made uh, every action that he did uh, justifiable, right? On some level. Who are you? I'm Maria. Will you play with me? Yeah, I mean, this scene, not only was it fought over between the censors, like it was fought over between Karloff and Whale. Like Karloff was really uncomfortable with this. Like Whale's original idea was that he thought Karloff would pick up the girl and kind of throw her over the head like a Donkey Kong or something uh, because he just didn't understand. It's like, oh, it's a barrel. I don't know. And Karloff was like, no way. It doesn't fit the character, which is also a little bit of no way. I can't physically do that. Are you crazy? By the way, yeah. Whale is like fucking with Karloff a lot. Apparently, the idea was that like he was jealous about all the attention that Karloff was getting as the monster. So <laughs> like that's why he makes him carry Frankenstein on his shoulder. So think of that. You're in a 45 pound suit and then you have to carry a man, uh, you know, oh. who's like six foot tall and 154 pounds and do it multiple times, you know, uh, and even in the actors in lifts in that costume with Colin stealing Clive, your pants. Colin Clive's like, dude, do it with a dummy. And and uh and they're like, no, 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 no. We must do yeah. it. Yeah, we must do it with a real way. I and mean, that which is is why you have health insurance today. Thank you, Karloff. Thank you, Karloff. <laughs> but sorry, go but, ahead. Oh, but no, so Karloff was like, no, he needs to put her in the lake more gently than that. It has to be kind of a playful thing. Like he has to be very innocent. There has to be pathos to it. And Karloff didn't like the way that it was shot. And so he was really the person who was like, if if this looks more aggressive, I just want it cut out of the movie. I want it cut down as little as possible. The censors were like, yeah, cut that out, cut that out. I mean, even Carl Emley, who was still in charge of the studio, he was like, no little girl's going to drown in one of my pictures. So then they tried to cut the scene really short. You know, it goes by really fast in this movie. Right, There's not a lot fast. of detail. There's no mm-hmm. like shot of her drowning in the water. So it's a no. little unclear what happens because they're so freaked out about killing a child. And yet, I think that it kind of adds up to make it look more perverse because you don't really, when you don't really know what happened, your mind can almost fill in the blank with worse stuff. Right. You know, because the one thing that he then does after this is then he goes and menaces the bride in the bedroom and you're not sure what he's doing or why. And it's a little bit of like, did Frankenstein, was he a creeper? Like what's happening? I think when you edit something too tight, you might almost make it worse in the imagination. Right, right. I think you're right. Well, Amy, while we're talking about this girl, um, Mary, who's thrown into the pond, I just need to talk about one thing that I read that I loved. You know, they're throwing a girl into water uh, and kids are like, you know, they're hard to direct already. They can't get the shot right. Um, and she's not a good swimmer. And James Whale is like, please, just can we do another take? We need to do another take. Like, 
what you know, what can I give you to to just do another take? Because he's kind of bribing her. Like, I think you have to do sometimes with kids uh, on film sets. And she's like, I would like a dozen hard-boiled eggs, which was her favorite <laughs> snack, right? Go uh, ahead, Luke. I know. It's hilarious. And so when she did complete it, they gave her two dozen hard-boiled eggs. That's a kid driving a hard bargain. But I love that. A like, hard-boiled but- bargain? <laughs> But so a little bit more about Mary. Uh, so, but just imagine this, the smell. Of- <laughs> There's something about Maria. She really likes hard boiled eggs. <laughs> yeah. The end becomes a little bit more. Um, I, I don't even know. I mean, there are some like kind of crazy things at the end. Like I think once that kid goes down, it's like, all right, now all bets are off. He's a crazy monster. We got to chase him out of the town. And then we got our pitchfork wielding people, which has become synonymous for, I mean, many things, right? This idea yeah. of this this angry mob. I mean, we've seen this angry mob a lot. And this angry mob that wants, doesn't oh even God, understand really what they want. Save the children. There's so much stuff going on right now with politics and, and the state of where we are as a country. But I do think it's interesting that this mob mentality, to me, seems like it's only getting more worse and more amplified because... Uh, again, going back to the social dilemma, which everyone has been talking about on Netflix, we are living in our own pitchfork bubbles. And so we are like, you know, so and that's what's happening here. Like no one's communicating with whatever. They're like, we got to kill it. Let's kill it. We don't even know what it is. Kill it. Kill it. Kill it. It's not for us. And by the way, they're right. They should kill it. But at the same time, him, him. Oh, yes. Him. Sorry. Uh, you know, um, well, you know, I didn't think he picked his gender. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, he didn't pick anything. You know, it's, again, something that feels of the now. It's been of our life forever. Like we, you know, as a country, as a culture, whatever side you're on, you're like, let's go and let's 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 get out there. You know, let's let's do this. Yeah. I mean, I almost wonder if in the back of their heads or maybe even more deliberately than that, they thought of the pitchfork mobs as those religious censors in different towns Mm. who are just angry at everything, maybe angry at the wrong stuff. You know, there's never a moment in a pitchfork mob where you can say, Actually, I wouldn't be afraid at, uh, of the monster. I'd be afraid of the man who made the monster who could then go just make other monsters. Like, mm. be mad at that guy. You know, they're right. afraid. They're mad at the wrong target from the beginning. By the way, you know, this ending of the film with a burning windmill, which is a beautiful. I mean, they do some really cool things with uh, the way they do perspective. Like when you see Dr. Frankenstein in the upper window during the rainstorm, during the, the first time he sees his girlfriend mm-hmm. there. Uh, but at this end, this burning windmill is just Awesome to look at. Uh, that actually was not directed by James Whale. Did you know that? Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, there was the original director, Robert Flory, uh, and uh, James Whale came in about two weeks before shooting was scheduled to begin. And there are one or two scenes that are actually Flory's work. That scene with the burning windmill is one of those scenes. So I guess that was like one of the the first maybe like, you know, test uh, special effects shots, you know, with the models and stuff like that. So it's interesting. I wonder how... Whale would have done it. I mean, it, uh, if you watch the original ending of it, uh, he definitely captures the monster more in pain inside the uh, inside the windmill. And I think that 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 is that seems more whale. I mean, I guess the the long distance shot. Who cares? It's just a windmill on fire. It's true. But yeah, you can't help wondering. I mean, as much as I really, 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 really like this film, that it did make choices that I think missed the point of the book, to be honest. Ooh, talk to me about that. Well, like in Mary Shelley's original book, there is no such thing as the deformed brain. You know, mm. her whole idea was that Frankenstein was just ugly, but, oh, ne- wow. but not a bad person necessarily. 
you know, or just just inhuman, but not bad. And that we were aggressive. It, it really helps shift the blame a little bit if you add this X factor of was it the right. brain? Right. It, the right. Brain it's not his fault. Right. Yeah. But Frankenstein was right. If he only had the right brain, this would all work, you know. And it's interesting because I think so much of what I also attribute to my empathy for the monster in here, I think is a bit of me adding it on from Bride of Frankenstein, mm, which I don't really know about that debate. one. Oh, yeah. There's sort of a debate like which Frankenstein is really the best Frankenstein? Like, mm-hmm. is it the original one or is it Bride of Frankenstein? Bride of Frankenstein. Not the Kenneth digs- Branagh one? Is Bran- the Branagh one in the debate? No, no, oh, not, not the Branagh okay. Stein. The, uh, um, the Robert De Niro's Frankenstein? Okay. It, the De Niro Stein. Yeah, yeah. that one. No, um, in Bride of Frankenstein. Were you talking <laughs> to me? Sorry, that was really. I'm I'm upset about that. I think you should apologize again. I'm really. I that was terrible. <laughs> no, in Bride of Frankenstein, the Frankenstein talks, which Karloff was really opposed to. Yes, Karloff was like, I don't think Frankenstein should ever talk. I think as soon as he talks, he starts to lose something. Right. In who he is. Mm-hmm. But when he talks, he does get to have more of a clear, a clear pull for empathy. Like, you know what he wants. We're not even just sort of guessing and projecting right. based on his movements. I want to play one of my favorite songs of The Bride of Frankenstein. If you haven't seen it, the setup here is that he's on the lamb. He's wandered into a small house. The house belongs to a blind man who doesn't know that he's a monster and just thinks he's his new buddy. And you get to see Frankenstein have a friend. And now for our lesson. Remember, this is bread. 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 And this is wine. To drink. 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 Good. Good. We are friends, you and I. Good. Good. And now for a smoke. No, no. This is good. Smoke. You try. Smoke. Good, good. I love this. I mean, and I, I again another realization. Exactly the same scene from Young Frankenstein. So they're parroting both films. I, <laughs> Although well, Young yeah. Frankenstein gets the gets the name right at least. Yes. You must be Igor. Now it's pronounced Igor. But they told me it was Igor. Well, they were wrong then, weren't they? It's interesting because I actually feel like watching that clip, and you can't see it here, but I think the makeup is better in the first film. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't really he think He looked about a that. little bit... He has um, more the sunlight. Yeah, I don't know. There was something about it where I was like, oh, that looks less. I could also see that being less because of, uh, you know, Boris Karloff being like, eh, no, we ain't going to do that again. Uh, yeah. You know, um, but there is something about him that looks a little more human, um, I don't know. Either way. No, his eyes do seem more alive. Like it doesn't seem yes. like he has all that putty on top of his eyes the way that he did to try to make them look dead. And he But yeah, to he me it's like he's a dog, right? Like you want him to be a dog or an animal, right? Like 
That, to me, is the better story. We don't know what an animal's thinking. We make all these assumptions about them, and I think it's the idea of, like, we're putting down an animal that's dangerous. That dog bit, so that dog is bad. Or, but, but you know, as now a dog owner, I'm, am I doing the right thing? Do you want to go out? What you, like you're, you're reading so much, and you're putting so much into them. That's why I think him not speaking and just you're trying to understand what he wants Without it, it's so much more interesting to me. No, you're right. I mean, to Karloff, he felt like once he started to speak, there wasn't that much more to do with the character. Like, no. he did one more film. He did Son of Frankenstein, which is good. It's good. Okay. It's not as good as these two, but it's fine. But he was like, I'm kind of done with this at this point. Am I and right so- or wrong in saying that, like, Bride of Frankenstein is like a feminist tale? There's not enough bride in it, I would okay. say, to make it fully. I mean, the bride comes to life like right at the end and then she just screams and he goes, she hate me. And then he right. burns down the place. But it does have Mary Shelley as a character. Like, oh, OK. It, wow. Elsa Lancaster, who plays the bride, also plays Mary Shelley in the beginning. Yes. And she's kind of hanging out with her buddies and they're talking about storytelling. Okay. And so I like oh, that, wow. that you get a little bit of Mary in the film. Uh, but yeah, like there's not a ton. I mean... What I really like about Karloff is, I mean, one, he's just a really good guy. Did you know, by the way, that Boris Karloff isn't even his real name? No. What's his real name? Oh, okay. Here's my new obsession while we're locked inside. I've been watching old episodes of This Is Your Life on YouTube. Okay. Because it's just this sweetest show. They would just pick people who didn't even know they were going to be on the show. Like Mm -hmm. celebrities would be just in the back. They're like, oh, you're here to honor someone else. And then they would be like, it's you. So they're honoring Boris Karloff. He's really surprised. And they bring out all these people that you haven't seen in 50 years. It's it's really emotional. But uh, this is Boris Karloff explaining his name. This is your life, Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff, that's a Slavic name, but you're uh, not Russian, are you? Uh, no, not Boris? really. Uh, you were born in... I was born in Dulwich, England. When did you take the name uh, of Boris Karloff? Well, when I first went on the stage, 1910, actually, up in Western Canada. Uh, why did you change your name, Boris? Well, it was a family name on my mother's side, and uh, I thought my own name of Pratt, if I ever got uh, known in the theatre might be unfortunate. What was your real name? <laughs> Pratt. George. Uh, William Henry William Pratt. Henry Pratt. The youngest of nine children, your father dies when you're just a baby. He was worried that people would call him a Pratt like his name was William Henry oh, Dingus wow. or something. So uh, he switched his name to Boris Karloff, which is like, I mean, that, he did that before I mean, he was making horror films. I mean, that aggressive. is real like, yeah. I'm going to do this. But he, he did kind of go back and forth between being a horror actor, I think, his whole life. I don't know if he was ever completely comfortable with it. He would quit, then he'd get like pulled back in to do a couple more. And oh, then he wow. did. Have you ever seen Targets? What's Targets? Oh, my God. I really want you to see Targets. It's a Bogdanovich movie from like, right at the very beginning of his career. And basically, they had this old Boris Karloff footage um, that existed because Karloff had been shooting kind of cheapies here and there. Basically, Roger Corman gave Peter Bogdanovich and Polly Platt, who really was instrumental in putting this together, got to listen to Green's podcast on it, um, this footage that included like old goofy shots of a Boris Karloff movie that he was shooting that he didn't know what to do with. And they came up with the story that Boris Karloff would play a retired horror actor who didn't want to do horror anymore because he thought that the world was too scary now, that there were enough real horrors in the world in the late 60s that he didn't want to make these kind of movies. So they they had a Boris Karloff film in there used kind of as a joke. And the real threat, which is like a shooter who's behind a drive-in movie screen that they're going to show his movie at later on. 
It's a hell of a Whoa, vote. I would yeah. recommend seeing it. But it's interesting to see Karloff kind of go through this film as an actor with this dignity who seems like he's a bit playing yeah. himself. Although I I found this this commercial, this Boris Karloff commercial that I kind of wanted to play with you, Paul, as okay. a bit of a game. Okay. So the setup here is like late in his career too, Boris Karloff is doing coffee commercials. And one of the commercials oh, yes. was experimental where they put words on the screen that the audience is supposed to say to the TV, to Karloff, and I want you to act against Boris Karloff. Oh, I cannot wait. Amusement. Great. Okay, great. Okay. You're going to do a scene with Boris Karloff. Your lines will appear right here. Read them loud and clear. Come in. You know why I've asked you here. No, tell me. You must convince the villagers that I'm harmless. I'll try. You're trembling. Are you afraid? No, uh, just chilly. Have some nice hot coffee. It's butternut. Like it? Delicious. Butternut has found a way of making coffee richer without being bitter. You can say that again. Butternut has found a way of making coffee richer without being bitter. I'll try butternut. Take this. Oh, I couldn't. Oh, don't worry. I've lots more. Butternut coffee. Regular and instant. Rich but never bitter. Rich but never bitter. Wow, Paul, that was beautiful. I really felt like I nailed it. You know, that was cold. That was a cold read, Amy. That was a fucking cold read. Didn't even know what my character was, didn't get it, but I, I just went with it. Wow, who were Ooh, you? I feel who were you good. thinking? I mean, you're clearly a man who walks into a creepy castle in the middle of the night being cold and eating coffee. Well, yeah, but that's me normally. So I guess I was just kind of playing myself. Um, On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I imagine when this movie comes out, I know that there's a lot of religious uh, people up in arms, but I can't imagine that people are not excited to see this film, especially, you know, in this time, I think it's, it's dark. I think dark films and dark times always kind of work. And, uh, what, what's the reaction? I mean, again, knowing it's following on the footsteps of Dracula, you know, I'm, I wonder if there's even a comparison or a conversation between these two. Well, most people did really like it. Most reviewers did, but some reviewers wrote about 1931's Frankenstein as though it was like Saw. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. So here's a review from the Motion Picture Herald. Frankenstein is a thriller, make no mistake. Women come out trembling, men exhausted. I don't know what it might do to children, but I know I wouldn't want my kids to see it. And I will not 
forgive Junior Lemley or James Whale for permitting the monster to drown a little girl before my eyes. That job should come out before the picture is released. It is too dreadfully brutal. No matter what the story calls for, it carries gruesomeness and cruelty just a little bit beyond reason and necessity. Wow. As I've said before, I don't pretend to know what any picture will do at the box office, but I know America is full of people who fight their way into murder trials, dash off to see scenes of revolting crimes, get up at night to run to fires. I know that there are millions who would use all the influence they could muster to witness a hanging or an electrocution. Almost any mortician can point out a dozen or score who are professional funeral goers. And I have a hunch those same people may rush out to see Frankenstein. I guess it's so interesting to see the takes of this stuff, because obviously we are living in a world we can never get back to that. Like the same way I felt about Bonnie and Clyde. Like I, I can't ever get in that headspace. It's interesting to hear it. But do you, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I'm, in that old review, you almost get the sense that he's like, you and the audience are the monster. But because we are reveling in this beating of this monster? Is that like what the idea is? Because we would be willing to go see a movie where a little girl gets killed. Right. I mean, look at that. Yeah. I mean, And I think this is the whole thing of of horror and what horror does and what horror provides for us, which is like presenting things that are awful to us to almost let us get out some sort of primal... Uh, like release, you know, to see something so awful, it almost allows us to move forward. I remember reading some sort of paper, uh, some dissertation, some psychology paper. Is that what they call them? Uh, where basically saying that you, that a horror film allows you to exercise your own demons or, or you know, it's like it's cleansing in a way. Um, whether or not that that's true, uh, you know, and and I guess this is the first in you know beginning of that. I mean, we're going to see way worse. We're as as films progress and 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 horror movies progress. And again, we're just tipping our toe in some very interesting ones in this one, and and kind of going around in our mini series here. But I love that this is the father of horror, and I'm bummed that this was kicked off the list. But I'm also feeling. Uh, that you don't necessarily love Frankenstein, but I don't know if I love Frankenstein as much as I love what it stands for, or if it's like, can I separate Frankenstein from where its place is in society? And I guess the question now is, let's talk about this in regards to what would aliens think if they were to see a Frankenstein? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think the most important historical thing about this movie is that Dracula showed there was an appetite for dark films, but Mm -hmm. Frankenstein really solidifies that this is a genre, right? Right. Where even that review I read, like the guy calls it a thriller, but it's post Frankenstein that they're like, oh no, this is a horror film and horror becomes a genre. And when horror becomes its own spinoff genre, instead of just a movie, like many other movies that is released, but is dark and scary, it really opens the door for it to be dismissed. You know, pretty soon after Frankenstein, reviewers start being more blasé about this kind of film. And like, it's just another one of those, which Frankenstein was not treated as just another one of those. It was a new thing. Right. And so in a way, I think it hurt some of the it opened the door for the future of horror not being given respect, even if it did create it. I guess it's a monster out of its control. What are you going to do? But it's also like this idea that I think is prevalent in most film criticism as a bold statement I'm making, I apologize if I'm wrong, but in lists where genre is not appreciated, right? Genre, mm-hmm. we just went through the AFI list. You could probably count on one hand how many comedies there are, that, and, and by the way, not contemporary. Uh, there, You can count on one hand how many horror films there are, like two, right? Mm-hmm. Sci-fi, sure, you got like 
three. You know, you know, two thousand and one Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, and maybe there's another Blade one in there. Runner. Blade Runner. Yeah. Oh, Blade Runner. It's like you know, it's genre is not often represented or respected as much as drama is. And I think when you have somebody like uh, Christopher Nolan, who's elevating the genre of superhero and making, you know, his Batman trilogy, oh, people pay a little bit more attention to it. Or, you know, and, and I think that you've seen that a lot where genre, I mean, right now we are living in a time where genre really is celebrated, but I don't think in 20 years, those films like Thor Ragnarok will not be on a best list. You know, I, it, I love Thor Ragnarok, but I'm saying like there there will be this reckoning where it's like, well, that's just popcorn. That's just this. That's just horror. That's easy. That's blank. That's this. And there'll be one defining one that gets on there. And I think we said like Get Out will be on the list, you know, or we think Get Out will be on the list. And and that's not dismissive of Get Out, but it's like, no, no, no. It has to be extra special. It's got to be this one and it gets on. But we will have 10 Vietnam films on. We will have five Holocaust dramas on, you know, and it's, there's different reasonings for both. And it's like a really well-executed genre film, I think is talking about society. I think it's talking about who we are and doing it in a way that's also commercially viable. When I was thinking, you know, if I was presenting a list to the aliens, I don't know if I would want to give them both Frankenstein and King Kong. I feel like we'd have Mm. to make a hard pick between one or the other. I mean, King Kong, I I think, was really inspired by this in a lot of ways. I, I think that some of the technical people working on one worked on the other I'd one. go King Kong over that. I mean, I, like you just said it. I'm just I like, I I, yeah. Yeah, because I feel like in the broad strokes of like, we kill mm-hmm. what we don't understand. Yes. You know, it, of of human ambition, of giant monsters running around with scaring blonde girls. Uh, uh, yeah. The only difference that I will... Well, no, there isn't. I was going to say what I, what I love about this is... You take something that is not supposed to be somewhere and then you react to them as if it's their fault, right? It's sort of, it's the Jurassic Park part of this as well. It's like, okay, we take this this gorilla out of this island and now we are upset that he can't perform in a theater show. You know, we we take this dead man and a brain, we put it in, we we bring him back to life and then we're mad that... uh, he is not acting normal, right? Like we like this idea of you didn't conform yeah, to society. To What's your problem? <laughs> yeah, it's like we created this thing that doesn't conform to our thing, and so now it's their fault. And and that yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on. Uh, there, I mean, and it I is. think that this I mean, is yeah. The one thing I feel like we would lose is I hate losing the Carla performance because I think it's truly yes. incredible. It's it is. Where King Kong is a creature, this is an mm-hmm. actor doing a creature. And I think that you can, you know, they, there's a lot of talk about, obviously, um, the actor who plays Gollum, uh, Andy Serkis. But what he's doing here, it's the same way we talked about James Dean. You want mm-hmm. to lock in amber this James Dean's cool. I want that on the wall. Boris Carlos performance. I want that on the wall. Like in my pantheon of film these things transcend the film that they're in. Can I say a dirty rumor? Yeah. I heard that if you talk to the animators of Lord of the Rings, I've oh, heard I know this episode. Yes. That they will say that they fully animated Gollum and that Andy Serkis didn't really do anything, but he said so and they really liked the press and the press sounded so good and that they've yeah. just gotten their work discredited this whole time and it's not really a motion capture performance. I know that too. And I didn't know we could say that on air, but there we go. We Can said we? it. Can we not? Well, we said it. We didn't say who said it, um, but we both 
Uh, we both heard it, and I've heard it mm-hmm. multiple times now. Uh, yeah. Go fact check with your local animator uh, who knows somebody who worked on that film. Yeah, go check in on it. Go get your friends at Weta. But I do think what I love about these films, and uh, and I think Jurassic Park does this to a lesser extent, but it is this idea of the fear of the other. We've always had the fear of the other and the way that we show that. And I think horror is a great way and I would put King Kong in horror as well to a certain degree, uh, is a great way to show how we are. I mean, the Star Trek episode where it is like I'm white on my right side and black on my left side, but then they're uh, white on their left side and black on their right side. And now we can't, we hate each other. They're so different. But they're, you know, the Frank Gorshin episode so good. But it's like, I think sometimes those bigger ideas go down easier in this way. And uh, But you're right. King Kong over this, for sure. That's what I would say. Yeah. But I also think... Aliens, enjoy this performance. You're lucky to see it. I, I felt, uh, I was insp- not inspired, but I really loved this movie. A, a great movie. Me too. I like that it, it it dabbles in a little bit of the German expressionism. I'm excited to figure out, I mean, I'm sure we'll probably do Caligari. Maybe no Oh, Spartan, yeah. But I, I want to do, or Der Golem. Oh, there's so many interesting ones. So many but great ones. I kind of want to let Karloff have the last word because I was listening to this interview with him and it struck me that in all the time, We've talked about the universal monsters, and I've been thinking just of universal as the lot. It never occurred to me to really think of universal monsters in the way that we're talking about them even on this episode, as monsters who represent universal stories that we all really connect to. Mm. And that struck me as I was listening to this Karloff interview. So I just want to listen to him. A monster series could be of an appeal to the public. Do you explain the reason of the success of the series? Yes, I think I can. We know that fashions in plays and in films and in stories change. They go in cycles, then they die out, then they come back again. But this kind of story, not not of necessity the monster, but this kind of story seems to go on forever. And I've often wondered if the real reason isn't that it's the oldest kind of story in the world, really, that it has its roots very deep in the legends and the fairy tales and the folklore of every race in the world and has a universal appeal. And I think that's why they go on in, in one form or another. But this is a great place to start off our discussion about horror. Like I said, this is the beginning of our discussion about horror in this miniseries and across this season, which is going to be uh, ever expansive. Um, but next week, we are going to move it up to a much more recent horror film. Um, We're going to go from the beginning to basically now. Right. Uh, we are going to be watching The Babadook. Uh, I love The Babadook. Uh, it frightened the fuck out of me. I actually own a Babadook book that is uh, an exact rep. It was recreated. It was I got in on this. Like I, I ordered this thing. It took like a year and a half to make uh, whatever. I finally got it. It's amazing. Uh, Do you but have I'm it stored in your best Babadook? By Mamanook. June does not let me keep it in the house because she thinks it's haunted, even though she's not seen the Babadook. Um, all so right. you had to Babatook it outside? <laughs> and, you wanna, and you want me to pull back from my, mm, are you talking to me? Uh, uh, let's take a little listen to the trailer of the Babadook. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. Babadook, duck, duck. 
first. Then you'll see it. This monster thing has got to stop. We can't get rid of the pepper dog. Babadook is available wherever you stream your films. I'm excited to talk about that next week. Maybe we'll get a fun guest. I mean, that, that movie is current. It's harder to get Boris Karloff on the show. But we'll see. We are uh, playing around with the format, still trying to find guests. And if you ever have a connection to a guest, uh, let us know. Uh, we always are interested. You see the list of films that we have coming up. And if you have somebody, uh, hit us up on Geneva. Hit us up on Twitter. Hit us up on Facebook. And we will uh, we will do the right thing and search it down and, uh, and see if we can kind of connect the dots here. Um, All right, Amy, we will see you next week for Babadook. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.